0: Welcome to the Investor Coaching Show, a podcast to help you get an insider's view of the financial world and escape common investment traps. We look at the financial news of the day and help you make sense of it so you can relax about money. And here's your host, Paul Winkler. And welcome to the Investor Coaching Show. I'm Paul Winkler. Talk about money and investing, retirement planning, understanding the news of the day, putting it in context. And sometimes it's just stuff that people ask me about here in the office during the week. And I'll just say, hey, you know, this is a topic that came up. Somebody asked a question. I want to share with you how we answer these things. So we also have another way of asking questions too. So it's the other way is to go to Paulwinkler.com forward slash question easy remember that paulwinkler.com forward slash question you can also go to the content segment of the website paulwinkler.com you go to content click on podcast and then you have this little place and you you can ask a question and when you submit something there we get it we take a look at it and uh, you know if it looks like a good question I can't remember last time it wasn't a really good question uh, you know, or something. It's people think, well, this is a dumb question. No, dumb questions don't exist in my world, unless they're really off topic or something. <laughs> but um, the, the the if we don't, if you had not heard the, when I actually cover the content on this show, you may not hear it. Don't worry, you're going to get an email, and we give you a. Uh, a we we'll give you a, a, just a link to the the episode, but anyway. So, question came in. Alan asked us this question. So, hey, Paul, thanks for the show. Is it proper for a quality financial advisor to suggest that I sell a piece of residential real, rental property, real estate, and uh, invest the proceeds in his financial group? On the surface, is that a conflict of interest? Thanks. I'd give them about two hundred thousand of equity at this point. Really good question. So, when you look at conflicts of interest it's almost like you can't go through life without something right there's always something out there that could be a conflict of interest could cause issues and like and I'll give you another example you know sometimes people come to me and they say hey you know cuz we manage assets too right and we do that on a fee basis. We try to keep the conflicts down where we align our client interests with ours. So you know, in essence, if the portfolio goes up, they benefit and we benefit. But here's the thing that happens. You can have a situation where somebody has some assets, they've got a mortgage, and they're thinking, do I take the money out of the assets and pay off the mortgage? Oh, you know, Because if they do that, the assets under management go down, right? Then you get rid of the mortgage. The way I approach this is I look at the person's situation and what I will do is go, here are the issues for you. Here are all the things that you need to know to make a good decision. I will not make this decision for you, but I always like to have a partnership anyway. Because if you're engaged in this relationship and I'm making those decisions, that's blind trust and that's nasty bad stuff. And if they're making, probably, hey, you'll make this much money on this thing versus, you know, you look at it and go, hey, your mortgage is, you know, is literally 2% or 3%. Some of these people, these old mortgages at only 3%. And look, the stock market is a 10% return and your investment has done this. And you go, well, yeah, great. What's, that's great. What's it going to do in the future? Well, they don't know that, Right. So here are the statistics on a portfolio. This is the expected return. This is the standard deviation. Here's what could happen. Here are the pros and here are the cons. Here are the risks and the dangers in your particular situation. I think it's only it's it's only right that a person actually explain all of the pros and cons. Like if you're looking at real estate, for example, uh, think about it. You may be saying, well, do I sell this piece of property to invest the proceeds? Well, are you going to continue in real estate. Do you like the business of real estate is a question I like to ask. Do you like doing that? A lot of people are like, no, I'm sick and tired of it. I don't like doing it. It's kind of, it's become a hassle. Uh, You know, if interest rates go up and real estate prices go down or real estate, let's say that all of a sudden the vacancy rates go up. How's that going to affect you? Is that something that's going to be a problem? Uh, You may have Let's say live in an area, well, you could have live in an area where the real estate market is hot, but then all of a sudden companies decide that they're going to move away or the tax laws change. I remember 1986, you know, you had the tax law changes and literally destroyed the real estate industry. Is this something that could be a problem? Because I like what Jonathan, and sometimes I'll use outside sources like Jonathan Clemens from he was a Wall Street Journal guy that basically said he would do the personal finance column and he said, hey, just recognize that a piece of real estate is an undiversified asset. Is that a problem? Can it be a problem? And here are the issues, here are the cycles of real estate. Uh, If you take a diversified portfolio and you look at how, if I put this together academically, what kind of income can be taken and how does that compare to the real estate when I'm renting it for? My, My father used to actually charge way below market levels for the real estate. He hated real estate. My mom loved it. Yeah, my mother was like, "If you own real estate, you've made it," <laughs> and, then, and it was it was personal upbringing. So I had to look at that. You know, when you look at that, where, for a couple, is do you have if there's something? Is there an emotional attachment to the real estate? It, are you really financially dependent upon it? What are the tax ramifications for selling the real estate? How much recapture do you have? Some people will go and do 1031 exchanges from one piece of real estate to another. And then they end up perpetually in real estate and it's like the Hotel California. They can check out anytime they like, but they can never leave. They can't get out of it. And does that bother you? Does it bug you that, you know, you could be tied to this property? How old is the person? Are they up there in age where if they sell the property, they may be missing out on a step up in basis to the next generation. And you may as well just hang on to it. I actually gave that piece of advice to somebody. Uh, She was in her 80s. That was a piece of advice I had given probably a month ago or something like that. And the choice was to hang on to the property. Choice was not to sell it in that particular instance. Some people look at and and that's kind of the way I approach it. Now, another big thing is what are they investing in? You know, what is what are they investing in? Are how confident are you in what they're investing in? Do you get it? Do you understand? You should think about it when you own, let's say companies, stocks, you've got a lot of exposure to real estate right there because companies own real estate. Is it better just to be concentrated in one property? Is the property, you know, some people have properties that's actually attached to their own personal residences and that could affect their own personal residence because they sell the property. Now they don't own it and now people can build or do anything in that property. I mean, I just, you see there are so many different variables. I think the job of the advisor is to bring everything in there, including the emotional, the taxes, uh, return, now, the issues of as we get older, is this something you're going to want to be managing as you get older? Is it going to be a hassle when it goes vacant? Is it a hassle when somebody calls you at all times? And and I've owned real estate. I do. And I always tell people that too. When people ask me this question, do you own any real estate? Yeah, I've got a commercial property. That's where my business is. And I got another piece of commercial property, a couple doors down. Um, got, I got a couple of residential. My, now, in my particular case, I... Have residential properties that are attached to my personal residence, and yes, there would be a negative impact if I, you know, sold. As far as I'm concerned, I don't want that. But if you ask me, is it a great investment? I would tell you, <laughs> no. But I don't care. You know, it's I'm not dependent upon it. If it went unrented for, you know, quite a while ago, you know, I have so many other inf- Most of my personal stuff is in stock market, bond, re- and we do what. I, I do what I have our clients do the same exact stuff. So in reality, I have very little exposure to real estate as a percentage of everything because I've been financial planning for almost you know not quite, you know almost like 35 years or something like that. But I mean, you know so that and so in in that way, I have diversified myself so much that that lack of diversification in real estate is not a big deal. and I use myself as an example to show, That this is something that can be very personal, but the goal is to make sure that the investor is making a decision fully informed of everything. Then I would rather they make that decision based on all the facts. And I will get, and every, all the facts that come from me, the way I like to do it is I like to make sure that the facts come from academic research so it's not the sales process. What do what the asset classes hold? What are the expected return? Why are the expected returns what they are? I don't care that large US stocks have you know, a history of you know, 10% return from 1926 until now and every 30 year period is within spitting distance of 10%. I don't care that that's what happened in the past. Is that likely to happen in the future? because that's what I'm making a decision on. I'm making a decision on what is likely to happen in the future, and quite frankly, we really don't know what actually is gonna happen with real estate or large U.S. stocks or small U.S. stocks or anything because you could have global thermonuclear war and everything's called off. So a lot of it's not even the financial side. A lot of it is really what do you want out of life And a lot of it, I always tell people, having all the answers isn't necessarily the most important thing. But the advisor's job is to ask the right questions of you and provide answers as far as what are the blank spots, what do you need to know more about, and what are things that you're not considering. You've heard it a million times. You need to think outside the box, right? You know, you need to think outside the box. Well as I always like to tell people, if you are the box, then it's really hard to think outside yourself. You know, so it, it is, you know, Proverbs says there's safety in the multitude of counselors, right? It's the idea that we want lots of different input so we make the best decisions. So there's more safety when I'm getting information from a lot of sources. If I'm the only source of information and I don't know everything and there's a lot of stuff that I don't know, I could make a really bad decision. So the advisor's job is to bring information to you that you may not know to help you make a good decision. And I think this is absolutely a critical question. I think it's so good because I think this is what the job, this ought to be a collaborative relationship. You know, work together so that you make a better decision for you. Now, let's face it, you know, there are things that the advisor is going to do, and there, there'll be a conflict if you sell the property and put the money with the advisor. Obviously. But the way I like to avoid that is through educating, and then you make the decision. So I hope that helps. And and really, I would just encourage you, make sure you get, really get what they're investing. I always tell people there are four things. What am I doing? Why am I doing it? What to expect? And, you know, because what to expect in returns, you can only say what's expected. You can't say this is definitely what's going to happen. And then what are the expenses? And then when you have that level of understanding, I think you have a much level of, a better level of confidence, and you're now not blindly trusting the advisor. Hey guys, if you want specific advice for your unique situation, schedule a free 15 minute phone chat with one of our trusted advisors by going to paulwinkler.com forward slash call. We don't sell any products and our advisors don't make any commissions, so this isn't a sales call. We have a coaching process that helps you understand investing and relax about money. Don't put blind trust in anyone with your financial assets. We want to partner with you in the process so you know what you're doing and why. We manage assets on a fee-only basis, which means that when you do well, we do well, which aligns our interests with yours from the start. We also bring you into the financial planning process that gives you a clear plan so you can find the freedom to pursue your purpose. All our advisors are degreed planners too, with years of experience. So schedule a free 15-minute phone call with an advisor by going to paulwinkler.com forward slash call. So there was, um, there was something that I saw this week. It was, I was perusing the internet articles. I like to, there are several different places I like to go and look at things. One is MarketWatch, and MarketWatch had an article We've never seen this before. And I'm like, <laughs> Yeah, I probably have, but you know, a lot of times they, they think, you never ever see it. it's a young, younger person probably writing an article. I'm guessing, I don't know. This <laughs> is like, it's like nothing new under the sun, right? Uh, millionaires are doing something unusual to preserve their wealth, and you can do the same. Now, number one, you may have heard my viewpoint on watching what millionaires do, it's very tempting. Very tempting to watch what millionaires do with their money, because you think, well, they're millionaires. They've got to be smarter. They've got to be better informed. They better really have their ducks in a row, or they wouldn't have gotten to be millionaires, right? Well, what we don't think about is that most millionaires got there through. Yeah, you know, some inherit it. You know, not the majority don't inherit it. If you read the Millionaire Next Door, it, you know they tend to be savers. Identity really good savers, you know. So you, you'll have people with investment portfolios that are terrible, but they just saved a lot. I mean, so just despite themselves. Uh, or another big source, a big one, is business ownership, right? That's why I always tell people the stock market's so cool. You get to be a business owner. You get to own a company without the hassle of running the doggone company. <laughs> you know, so that that's kind of cool. You know, when you think about it that way. So with owning a business, you might build this business up and it's worth millions of dollars. And then you sell the company and now you're a millionaire, multimillionaire many times over. And, um, but I'm going to tell you, I, I found this and You know, it's, it's funny. I was having a conversation with somebody this week about this topic. I said, you know, they're asking me about our, their ideal clients for our firm. And I said, well, I don't typically, I don't relish the idea of working with somebody that hasn't, doesn't have a long history of investing and working with different investment firms and brokerage firms or mutual fund companies. And he goes, why? And I said, well, you think about it, they haven't been burnt (laughs) enough. I'm really just adamant that you have to have been burnt many times to really appreciate what we do. You know, because I have found so many times, and I've seen this where somebody owns a business, they sell the business, they come to us, and they go, I've been listening to you on the radio for years, and I've got this bunch of money, and I want to invest it. And some people are fine when they do that. You know, they're they're really good. They're really disciplined. But I found that some people, are, you know, they... They, they all of a sudden, they hear something else, the siren call of something else. <gasps> oh my goodness, I love to hear what this person says they're doing over here. And then they jump ship and they lose discipline and they jump into something that I have preached against for as long as they've listened to me talk on the radio. And they don't realize that, and they realize that they're falling for something really bad. So, you know, I find that people that, and here's why. I guess, let me, let me just explain to you why this is a big deal to me. Most people, there is this concept in psychology, and you know me in psychology. I, I loved every bit of going and getting a master's in psychology because I learned so many good things. One of the things that they taught us, they were teaching about a guy named Bert Murray Bowen. Uh, and Bohemian, he had this way of dealing with counseling, Bowenian, Bowenian counseling. And it was family structure, family dynamics, and, and so on and so forth. And what was taught was this, was that he, if you actually followed him and his method of doing things, it was a long counseling process. It took many, many more sessions. It was definitely not brief. The reason it was long is because it was insight-based. And what I mean by that is that you're learning about how you tick and what makes you tick and what's going on and you're understanding. And here's what they taught about this, which I think was brilliant. Insight does not create change very fast. Because I learn, I learn, and I learn. But, you know, the reality of it is I just don't retain it that well when I'm learning by insight. You know what really gets our attention? Emotion. Let's say that you screw up and you have a really bad circumstance with investing. Guess who never forgets that lesson? (laughs) You never forget it because you have an emotional attachment and the lesson was learned with deep emotion. And when it's learned with deep emotion, your likelihood of forgetting it is somewhere next to nothing. Think about stuff that happened when you were eight years old. You wonder, why do psychologists go back to when you're a kid? Why do they do that all the time? It's because you will remember stuff that was emotionally laden and it's still affecting you to today. That's why, okay? That's, that's why that works, okay? little insight there. So here's what happens. Is that somebody that has been burnt will remember that and then they learn the lesson. Okay, so this is why this is such a critical thing to me. So if we look at millionaires and we say, well, you know, so they got there, many of them by running businesses. They saved a lot of money. Are they great investors? No, I'm just going to submit. No, they're not. And there's a, the Forbes book. Uh, you know, they actually went through millionaires and they compared in one of the charts. They had the 25, it was like 25 people or something like that, or 25 years, I forgot how many, it was something like that, number of millionaires. And they compared the growth of the wealth of the wealthiest people in the world compared to just what the stock market had grown at over the the same period of time. And they found that most of these millionaires actually underperformed that. I mean, even though they were smart and they were, you know, they had these businesses and they had done so well in how wealthy they were, they weren't very good investors. They just really weren't, is the point that they were making. You know, so I look at that as one thing. Now here in this article, it says, we've never seen this before. Millionaires are doing something unusual to preserve their wealth. And you go, okay, what are they doing? Normally, I don't click on this stuff, clickbait. I don't look at it. But I was just like, you know, (laughs) I was like a moth to the flame. (laughs) I got to click on this. (laughs) And I did. So, uh, it has a picture of a wealthy person sitting in front of their pool at their beautiful posh estate. And they're talking about what is it that these high net worth individuals are doing? Well, what they're doing is they've stored 34% of their wealth in cash and cash equivalents. Now, number one, you think about that. If they were really all that confident about what they were doing, they would be putting all their money in cash and cash equivalents. Now, why is it that you know people are – why are you, know, you look at this and go, they're investing in the very thing, cash, at banks, right, that people are really kind of scared about because they've been hearing a lot of the negative news about banks. And then that's a little bit of an inconsistency right there. They're putting their money in banks that we've been hearing news about having problems, right? That's a little bit weird. But think of what is the bank. The bank is an intermediary. The bank takes your money and invests it someplace else. So you think about that. What are they doing? They're investing in banks that are investing their money in different types of loans backed by what? Like businesses and real estate and all of that stuff. And you go, this is a little kind of funny, isn't it? But, you know, I digress. I keep going on this and and just say, hey, let's, let's get back. So they're holding off on investing in equities was one of the headlines. Oh, the wealthy. The wealthy are holding off and investing in equities. Maybe I should do the same, not investing. Well, number one, they weren't investing all of it in cash. So hold off. That's not necessarily that... That uh, that pertinent, really, when we look at that. But then they have this beautiful chart right here. And, uh, you know, if you're watching on the, the video of video the podcast uh, and uh, quite often in many of the segments, and, and you see that this beautiful chart with different levels of blue on it. And what they're showing here is the cash equivalence is one area. Fixed income is another area that they're pointing out. Another one's real estate. Another part of it is equities and alternative investments. Now, the equities varies. You know, they'll have 20% and then 31% and 25% in another period of time and then 31%. And what I looked at was this. How much money do they have in cash that they say that they're investing right now? They, They have the percentage there and they're saying it's really high. Well, let's go back on their chart. Their chart actually points out how much they have in cash at various years. So apparently they've been doing this survey for quite a while. And last time that they had a lot of cash was in 2002. Well, what happened in 2003 Because they had lots of cash. They must have been thinking things were going to be bad. Well, the S&P... And i am not going to even talk diversified portfolio because other areas of the market actually went up more than this. But I'm just using this for simplicity's sake. I'm going to use the S&P 500 just to make the point. In 2003, the year after they had a lot of cash, 28.7% return for the S&P 500. Then in 2006... Oh, after the big return, their cash holdings, this is a couple of years later, you know, a few years later, their cash holdings went way down. Now, remember, because 07 and 08 were kind of bad, right? So so what they did is they had more invested in the stock market just before you had bad stuff happen. Oh, that's brilliant. Way to go, wealthy people. <laughs> and then you go, when's the next time? they? When did they increase their, their mix to cash again? Oh, they uh they increased it about 50% their cash holdings uh into by 2008. They had increased it just in time for the market downturn. And then what happened? But they didn't increase it that much. And they actually increased equities too. So there, there's a lot of equities. So that they did oh, that looks pretty good. They had a little bit more in ca- then they increased it again. But what happened? when they had the most cash next time. Because they didn't have a lot in cash in 08, okay? So I don't want to mix you up any or confuse you, but they didn't really have that much. So they didn't have that much that missed the market downturn in 08. So it may look like they were smarter, but they really weren't because they they only had 21% of their portfolio, is what they said here in this particular article. Was it, that was it. Then in 2018, they had almost 30% of their portfolio in cash again. Was that a good idea? No, because the S&P 500 went up 31.5% the next year. Blew it again. Then, again, when do they have lots of cash? According to this chart... Uh, in 20, 2020. And of course, 2020, the first part of the year went down, but it, it ended up pretty well. And then 2021, you had a 28.7% return. So you, you look at that and go, whoa, that wasn't so hot either, was it? No. Then the cash drops down some, drops down some. And you know now they're saying they're holding record levels of cash. If, if I were a market timer, and I am not, I would be inclined to go, let's go and invest in stocks because the rich are investing in cash right now and their track record of good investing really stinks. But I'm not a market timer. Here's the reality. I don't change my asset mix much at all. I keep things in balance. Yes, there's reoptimization that happens based on correlations, all kinds of complicated stuff. But I do not engage in tactical asset allocation, which is just another form of market timing. And I'm telling you, this is weird. Investment firms very rarely don't engage in that. Matter of fact, you read the ADV or the disclosure, the government disclosure on investment firms, you'll see... You'll see strategic asset allocation is one type of thing. Tactical asset allocation is the one you see all the time, which is a form of market timing. And you know you'll see technical analysis. Ooh, they do technical analysis. Uh, you know, and and they'll and and they'll look at the the company. They'll do bottom up or top down, or they'll use all of this. Language that's really complex sounding, but it's literally just market timing and stock picking in disguise. Wealthy people, rampant. We see it all the time. You have the concept of the accredited investor, and an accredited investor can do anything. If they invest in hedge funds. They can go anywhere and do this and buy this and sell that and move to this area and short this area of the market and can go long this area of the market, and what they're doing is gambling with a portfolio. And the government looks at it and goes, hey, you're an accredited investor. You got enough money you could afford to lose it. No big deal. You go do what you want. I look at it and go, no, I'm not playing that game. I'm not playing that game. And I am not going to folly follow the f- folly. That's probably a good word right there. The folly of wealthy investors thinking that they've got a better beat on things when they simply do not. The history shows that they're just not that good at this. Hey, this is Paul Winkler. Hope you enjoyed today's edition of the Investor Coaching Show. You want to learn more about what we do? Go to our website, paulwinkler.com. You can watch some of the videos there. and If you're not already a client, you can set up a free initial consultation. Until next time, I'm Paul Winkler, reminding you that I believe that more educated investors are more confident investors, and confident investors are more successful investors. Have a great one.